Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Joining me for today's episode will be my co-host, Ryan All, who is an Army veteran, current reservist, and we will be highlighting the TAP program from the Army, the Transition Assistance Program. And what they do is they provide information, tools, and training to help service members and their spouses get ready to successfully move from the military to civilian life. Uh, our guest today is retired Colonel Walter Hurd. He spent 24 years in the Army. He was commanding special forces. Uh, he wrote a book, which we'll talk briefly about, and you can find a link for in the description. But Walter is the uh, director of the TAP program for the Army, uh, which is obviously the largest branch of the military. So he's a lot of responsibilities, and he gets into uh, kind of what service members should expect whenever they are deciding to transition out and what they should decide to do actually quite early on uh, before they transition. Ryan and I learned a lot about the TAP program through our conversation with Walter. We hope you do too. And we also hope that you like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. Thank you so much for watching The Scuttlebutt. And if you would like to contact me, you can do so at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org and enjoy the episode. Uh, good afternoon. I am Walter Hurd. I'm the National Director of the Army's Transition Assistance Program. Uh, I'm blessed in that I get to fulfill a career that lines up with my passion. I spent the bulk of my adult life about quarter of a century in uniform. And for the last dozen or so years, I've been able to help those transition out of uniform into the civilian sector from which we all came. Thank you, Walter. And uh, Lena said uh, you've spent 24 years in the Army, you commanded special forces, you were in special forces, um, but when you transitioned out, uh, did you notice that there was sort of a gap and, and what brought you to, to be passionate about helping other soldiers transition? Yeah, I'll tell you, my personal experience with my transition and the experience I've observed throughout hundreds of thousands of others is that transition off of active duty is almost always hard. Uh, regardless of your background, long time, short time, uh, you name it, it's, it's a dramatic difference. So in my case, uh, with a lifetime in uniform and really my entire childhood preparing for that time in uniform and, and serving in a couple of wars and doing a lot of great, great and enjoyable stuff, uh, it was really hard to wrap my head around for the first time in my life uh, what I did didn't define who I was. And when you're in uniform, what you do is being a soldier and who you are is being a soldier. So they're synonymous. But what I what I had to learn, and it's a hard thing to learn, and I'm still working on it, frankly, is, is that difference. Uh, what you do, in most cases, your employment, whatever it is, doesn't define who you are and what you are. That makes, you know, so much sense to me. So um, the program that I work for in the VA is called the Vet Center, and we're technically called reintegration counseling. And you know, we're the the reintegration we're typically looking at is you know the um, assisting service members who are dealing with you know combat stress or PTSD and helping them reintegrate into civilian world. So it's it, there's definitely a through line here between like you know TAP and and you know what I what what we do here at the Vet Center, which is interesting. Um, so you said you've been at a transition assistance program for uh, 12 years? Yeah, about a dozen years. I guess I, I took the ball here maybe the summer of 2010, okay. which seems like a long time ago. I guess it was. It, it kind of almost seems like yesterday. 
a lot of major, major changes in the program and, and, and the rest of society as well, of course. So that was going to be my question was what, since you came in, what are, what have been the, the major changes that you've, that you've seen in the program since that time? Yeah. We've made a couple of 180 degree changes. It seems like every time we turn around, uh, the good news is I think most of those changes are, are uh, made based off lessons learned mm-hmm. and not just opinions held. So I'll just back up a little bit uh, at, at the end of uh, the cold war. When the Berlin Wall fell down, um, uh, the Army began a transition assistance program, really for the first time uh, that we've ever had a formal program to help soldiers transition. So that was 30 years ago, 31 years ago or so in 91. Um, And that was a deliberate program to allow a large army to become a small army. Uh, Historically, we've just mustered people out, given them a ticket home. Thank you very much. Move out. So that program we called ACAP, you may remember, uh, was pretty much a voluntary program. There were a couple of things that you had to do, but the vast majority of it was just voluntary. We encouraged it, um, but it was voluntary. So we continued through that realm really until about 2010, so almost 20 years or so as, as a mostly voluntary program. You had to kind of read the menu, as it were, you had to do some initial pre-separation counseling, but how much of the other stuff you did was was up to the individual or the unit. Uh, and then in about 2011, Congress passed a law that really said everybody must do certain elements of TAP. Uh, and then the Department of Defense kind of added and and uh, uh, and and beefed that up a little bit. Uh, and that was an improvement, a dramatic change. So when I retired, um, I took all of the, at the time, ACAP that I could because I didn't know what I was going to do. My last civilian job was cutting grass as a high schooler. And and now, you know, 30 years later, I'm hoping to at least drive the zero turn mower or something like that, promoted, get myself promoted. Um, So I took a lot of it, but I know a lot of soldiers didn't. So about 2011, 2012, uh, the whole TAP thing became very much mandated and that everybody did everything. Um, And then what we realized, heaven forbid, everybody's not the same, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So what what a a 40-year-old retiree needs and what a 22-year-old ETSing soldier needs or what a 30-year-old National Guard demobilizing soldier needs are three totally different animals. So we were able to to work with Congress and the Army was able to lead the Department of Defense um, into making it more of a, a customizable program. So when a soldier starts TAP, the very first thing they do is an assessment to kind of figure out where they are and where they want to go. Uh, And in some cases, that's a pretty short distance. Other cases, it's a huge distance. And then that really determines how much TAP uh, they are required to do. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that obviously makes a lot of sense. And I can see how that uh, you know, the policy, the, the initial directive would need some, some feedback, some pushback from DOD or the army to say like, that doesn't really quite make sense in this case. Um, but what are like, if you could speak in, in generalities, I guess, like what, what are some major like barriers or obstacles that you typically see? What's like the number one or number two thing that, that seems to be pretty yeah. common? Yeah, that's a great question. And boy, I really want to, I want to talk about those because that's, uh, there's some simple things that are, can really help out the individual soldier and, and therefore the army writ large. 
uh, first, just to kind of put it in, in scope, about 100,000 soldiers a year take off their uniform and put on some variant of civilian outfit, right? So about 100,000 soldiers, typically about two-thirds, three-quarters of those regular army, and then the remainder, you know, 25, 30% demobilizing Guard and Reserve. Uh, so they have different requirements. As you would imagine, you certainly know, Ryan, as a, as a reserve component soldier, uh, if you're if you have a civilian job and then you're mobilized for six or eight months, you're probably going back to the same civilian house, same civilian job, same neighborhood. So it's a it's an easier transition maybe than somebody who's never had a civilian job and it's been five or ten or thirty years. But what we found, particularly with that latter group, the the regular soldier or even a reserve component soldier that's been on active duty for an extended period. Uh, what we found is one rule is extremely beneficial. And here it is. This is the footstopper. This is the one to write down. The secret to success with transition is to begin the process early and then repeat stages of it often. I tell people that TAP or transition is like physical training. And that is you don't wait until a week before your, your PT test and try to do push-ups for eight hours straight. It just doesn't work that way. What you do is you do push-ups three or four or five minutes a day for months and months and months. And then when it's time for the test, you're ready to go. And TAP is the same way. You don't wait until a month or two before you become a civilian for the first time in three or four or 30 years and then start figuring it out. You think about it for a year or two years or 10 years prior to that so that you have a plan. And like any other plan, you got to know where you are and you got to know where you're trying to go. And then you set milestones between those two data points uh, and, and you start marching. And, and you, there's no way we, we've found, and I'll give you some data here in a couple of minutes. Um, you can't start that on Monday morning and be squared away on Friday. You just can't do it. It's, again, it's like PT. Uh, you can't start it Monday and be ready to go on Friday. You can start it in January and be ready the next. December, January, February, that's good. Um, so what we found, since everybody wants to know, how do we know this? This isn't, this isn't just a good idea. This was some data we've analyzed. And what we found is that soldiers that begin TAP in about the last six months before their transition date are two times as likely to be unemployed as soldiers who begin TAP early. Mm. So when you ask soldiers, how many of you want to get a job when you take off uniform? The vast majority, of course, raise their hands or go to school. When you ask leaders and commanders and first sergeants and sergeants majors, how many of you want to help your soldiers be successful? Well, of course, they, they raise their hand because that's why we're in this business. Yet what we found is that the later a soldier begins TAP, the more likelihood their their chance of failure is. It's, it's, a, it's a one-to-one correlation almost. Mm. So... That is the single most important thing uh, that soldiers and leaders need to understand about TAP. Go early and go often. As a civilian, and this is just me not maybe not knowing, but uh, when soldier, does it matter when a soldier decides that they are going to transition back to civilian life? Do they, do they know months, years in advance, or is it are there points where, hey, my my uh, re-up is coming up and I'm kind of deciding, and you know they don't have the time to 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 go into the tap? Is there sort of an advanced program in tap that they could jump into if they make that decision at the last minute? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And we get asked that, that kind of question a lot. So here's, here's a, another little data point for you. Everybody transitions. Hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm. Now, it might be this year or it might be 20 years from now, but everybody transitions. Again, like PT, everybody takes that test. Mm-hmm. Maybe next month, maybe next year. Um, so, so, yes, everybody in the Army knows typically when their initial enlistment is up. You know, they signed up for three years or four years. So they know when that three-year period is up. And sometime before that, they start to think and ask themselves questions. Hey, do I want to do I want to do another tour or do I want to go home and do something else? And, and that's that dialogue that soldiers and leaders need to have constantly and soldiers amongst themselves. Uh, you know, having been like a lot of the Army uh, on a couple of combat deployments, uh, I know for a fact that, that Every soldier, whether you're deployed in harm's way or not, every soldier at some point talks to their buddy in the foxhole or in the, the bunk or, or in the barracks and says, hey, uh, what are you doing when you get out of the Army? What are you thinking when you go home? I mean, that's a, that's a very common discussion that has been for 10,000 years. So what we're trying to do is put some form to that discussion so you can actually make uh, informed decisions and make wise decisions. I had a question. Just this kind of just came to me, and and you might have gone through this as a as a personal experience. So you know, I was wondering if you had had any data about this. But like, what I've kind of noticed, and this is just anecdotally, right, is that the the young soldiers or the young service members who get out after six years or so, so they're 24, 25 maybe, they seem to have an easier time transitioning than the guys and girls who were in for 20, 25 years, the, the colonels, the sergeant majors, because, you know, at, at 24, 25, you can still kind of like start at the bottom, right? You can go to, you know, a lumber company and say, yeah, I'll drive the forklift for a few years because I'm 24, right? But for people with two decades plus of experience, it's kind of, it seems like it might be a little more difficult to find that niche or that job that, you know, is meets their expectations or meets their their capabilities have you seen that at all well that's a great question and uh there are a hundred ways to define a successful transition sure and it's different for everybody right it, it could be the amount of money you make it could be whether you meet your uh your internal moralistic goals it could be whether you find mr or mrs Wright and get the white picket fence in the neighborhood they all have different uh objectives so what we found from an employment perspective, as you would expect, uh, the, the more junior soldier uh, is slightly unemployed more so than the more senior soldier, which, which kind of makes sense because their life skills at age 23, 24 are not that of 43 or 44. But you're right in that the older soldier who's, who's kind of at the top of their game right further up the game and they've they've seen and done more things uh has a harder time finding the niche so here's another couple of data points for you uh most soldiers young or old change change jobs a couple of times fairly rapidly in the first three or four years mm-hmm. so in the army you, you you sign up and you're pretty much in until you say you're not right might be three might be 30. But in the civilian sector, and, and you, you two certainly know this since you're civilians, um, uh, it's much more transient. And that's fine. So soldiers 
transition off active duty. They do something for a couple of years and, and then maybe they learn the environment, learn the community, learn the AO a little bit more and they find something they like better. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's fine. Uh, we set ourselves up for failure when we think, you know, I was in the army for 25 years. Now I'm going to shift and I'm going to be in this next company for 25 years mm. because you're probably not. I mean, very rare, very small chances that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about, uh, again, when you start that process early and you can really learn about industries and regions and firms and learn about longevity and cultures and ex- realistic expectations, then life is just better. But if you try to start on Monday and be done on Friday, you're going to end up jumping off the high dive with no idea what's underneath. Can you lead us through sort of a typical soldier coming in, let's say 30, what they experience when they enter tap? We, we touched on the fact that we figure out where they're at, but then what do they move into beyond that? Yeah, so what we try to do uh, is, is spend about a day at the beginning. So 12 to 18 months before the date on your DD-214. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you're ETSing, regular army, retiring, demobilizing, medical discharge, you name it. Best case scenario, about 12 to 18 months before the date on their DD-214, they go to the TAP center at their installation, or if they're not on an installation because they're teaching ROTC in the middle of the country somewhere, then they can go to our virtual TAP center Mm 24-7. Midnight on Saturday night, and we got a counselor with a master's degree waiting for you. So about 12 to 18 months prior, they spend about a day and we call it Army Day, and they, they do an assessment to kind of figure out where they are, what they want to do, what's their education, do they have any credentials, uh, et cetera. Um, and then they get something called a pre-separation counseling. And I tell people that's like the menu at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. You sit down at the table and, and the waiter comes over and, and they say, okay, here's all our specials. We've got pork, chicken, pasta. Here's the special of the day. Think about it and I'll be back in five minutes. Uh, so that's the pre-separation briefing. And then they do a couple other things on that first day. They they start talking about financial readiness. Again, you got to know your expectations. If I'm going to live in mom's basement, that's a whole different requirement than if I'm going to live in my own house in Beverly Hills, right? So I need to do the math on both of those. Um, so, so that day, and then we schedule kind of one day every month or two or a couple of days every couple of months for a different task. So if you say early on, you know, I really want to go back to school and finish a degree. Okay, that's great. So let's come back in two or three weeks or a month and and let's talk for a couple of days about how to do that. How do you take the the SAT if they still do that? Or how do you make uh, scholarship applications? Or what kind of school and what kind of major, by the way, do you want to major in pre-law or basket weaving or art or history? I mean, they're all good. Just let's talk long-term planning and and council soldiers, you know, the army uh, and only the army, our TAP counselors are actually career counselors with master's degrees in, in some kind of counseling or uh, a similar background. So they, they really make their money in talking to soldiers about here's where I want to go and let's figure out how to get there. And then, and then those programs, those kind of one or two, t- one or two day at a time, goes through right up until a couple months before you get your DD-214. So we have one day that's do- that's dedicated to your VA, your Veterans Administration benefits. And Ryan, you know this, you work at the VA, there's some 
great benefits out there. But nobody in uniform knows what they are because they've never really used them except maybe the home loan benefit. So so we have a day and we talk about all those benefits and how you get them. And, you know, if you have more questions, which you will, here's how you get them answered. Uh, we have a day or two, depending on your career track, on, on getting a job and how to write a resume. And the key with a resume, like anything else, is to start it early and customize it. So a resume to company X in, in a career X is different from a resume for company Y and career Y because they're looking for different skills and you want to highlight different skills. Um, so we spent some time on that. Uh, and then and then about 90 days before the date under DD214, we have what we call a capstone, which is kind of like the final review. Okay, a year ago, you were supposed to do this, 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 and this. How'd it go? Let me see your resume. Let me see that financial plan. How about a school application? Do you have a school application? Have you been have you been accepted? What's your plan? You're going to live in mom's basement? Do you have a, a an apartment? I mean, what's your plan? Um, so that capstone event is really the last time in most cases where they interact with a with a tap counselor, and kind of from then um, they're off. I, I hope they were paying attention for the last year or so. I'm sure taking over the tap program uh, was a challenge in its own right. Um, taking it over for the Army, which is the biggest branch, probably was was quite a challenge. Um, can you talk to us a bit about uh, how the TAP program for the Army differs from the TAP program for the other branches? Yeah, that's great. Happy to do that. And and I, I sit on the uh, the interagency table and the inter-service tables, plural, and represent the Army. And as I frequently tell the other services, we are the majority shareholder in the Department of Defense. Uh, we make up about 55% of the people. Therefore, 55% of the transitioners and, and all the other stuff. Um, so there are a couple of major differences. Number one is uh, we have always tried to spread it out over time because we know that works. Again, back to the PT scenario, you don't wait until a week before the PT test and, and start working out. Um, so we've always tried that. The Army and only the Army has a 24-7 virtual center. Uh, so if it's mid midnight on Saturday night, uh, Sean or Ryan, and that's when you and your wife want to talk about your resume or your budget or what do I want to do in a couple of years? Where do we want to be? How much money do we, do we need to make? There's a counselor who can talk you through all that stuff. Uh, and, and, and we keep detailed notes on that. So if you talk to somebody different last week, they say, okay, it looks like last week you talked to Bob and you all talked about going back to Kentucky. So how's that going? Um, so the Army uh, invested in that way before COVID, by the way, way before any other services still don't have that capability. Um, and then we really focus our counselors, uh, hiring our counselors on getting actual civilian career counselors. Some of the services use uh, their reenlistment NCOs, which are great assets, certainly, but it's a different animal because they haven't transitioned either in most cases. Um, but you have to look at the demographics of the service. Uh, and I don't mean to denigrate anybody because America can't win wars without all our services, right? It's just, you just can't do it. Uh, some of the services have almost a one-to-one -one military skill and civilian equivalent. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Airplanes and ships, although they're a little different, but the refuelers and the mechanics and the navigators are very similar on all those. Uh, I looked and, and there are no, and Ryan, you know this, there are no civilian jobs for a machine gunner. There are none. 
there are no civilian artillerymen out there. So that, that, by the way, makes up about a third of our army that by definition has to do something totally different than what they've been doing the last two or 20 or 30 years. So we've customized that with really with the young at-risk soldier. So uh, I want to make no mistake, and I'm non-apologetic about this in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the main effort for this program is the young first or second term soldier. Hmm. That's that's our moneymaker. That's the Army's bread and butter, right? That's who does the fighting. That's who wins the wars. Uh, and that's that's the main effort for the whole transition assistance program. That's yeah, that's great. And, you know, it is a shame that there's not more jobs where I can go shoot machine guns in the civilian world because that would be nice. It'd be a great stress reliever. I'd really enjoy that job. But um, uh, I guess my last question for you, Mr. Hurd, um, you know, what uh, of the of of the transition um, assistance program, like what program or policy or change um, that you've seen over the past 12 years? What what's do you think has had the most beneficial impact uh, for the soldiers transitioning? Uh, There have been a couple. I'll tell you, there are a couple of challenges, and I'll talk about those two. Uh, huge positive impact when we shifted from a one-size-fits-all to a more customized uh, process. So b- before that, when it was one-size-fits-all, I went to visit an installation, I think Fort Bragg, and I was sitting in a tap class with a group of 20 or 30 soldiers just kind of watching, just observing, right? Uh, battlefield circulation, uh, just like I did in uniform. And during the break, I talked to a, uh, a young officer. And I said, so uh, tell me, what's your story? What are you doing? How long have you been in the Army? Uh, what, do you, what do you do when you get back? And, uh, you know, that sort of thing. She said, well, um, I'm an anesthesiologist. I've been in the Army 10 years, uh, and I've already bought into a practice in Atlanta. And I'm going to go there in a couple of months and make about three times what I'm making now. And it just hit me. I said, okay, and you're sitting right next to a 22-year-old great American truck driver or mechanic or machine gunner or whatever, yet you two have wildly different expectations and risks. So that's when we really tried to drive the, the policy train, which ultimately drives the resourcing train, the number of people, the amount of dollars, et cetera, so that we could customize as much as possible uh, to let people know really what they need, to get them what they need. So that was a huge benefit. And then I think this uh, pushing to go early, uh, and that's a, that's an uphill battle, uh, just because commanders and leaders, uh, their plate is full, their cup runneth over. They have a lot of stuff to do, and America expects a lot of them uh, so it's it's um, uh, it's always tempting to kind of push this off to the last minute. I'll tell you one one quick vignette that uh, summarizes my thought on this process. Uh, long ago, I guess, heck, I won't tell you, a couple of decades ago, I commanded an SF battalion at Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, one of my soldiers was retiring, a phenomenal soldier, master sergeant. I'd known him for a couple of tours. Uh, just the best of the best. An airborne ranger, Green Beret, had done all the stuff you're supposed to do. And as I was pinning his retirement medal on his chest, I said, so what are you going to do? What are your plans? And he looked at me and said, well, 
I don't know. I really haven't thought about it. And my first reply, first thought was to shake him and say, what do you mean you haven't thought about it? What have you been thinking about the last 20 years? I didn't do that. Thank goodness. And then my second realization was to myself, and that is, wow, I probably should have asked that question before today. I should have asked that question a year ago because I've known him for a long time. So what we're trying to do with this program is to get leaders, team leaders, squad leader, platoon, all the way up to food chain to ask that question. What are your plans? What do you want to do? Talk me through how you're going to get there. Um, and there's no right or wrong answer, except, I don't know, we'll wait and see what happens. That's the wrong answer. Uh, so that's really what we're trying to do. And, and that's hard because we got a lot of, a lot of other irons in the fire. I only have yeah. one more question for you, Mr. Hurd, uh, from my sure. end, but I'm thinking, you know, if I'm a civilian, uh, I own a business and I'm looking to hire a veteran and, you know, what should I as a civilian be looking for when a veteran walks into my office to interview and he comes in as a machine gunner, you know, I understand from reading this and working with veterans. Yeah, that can be kind of like speaking a different language, but uh, what is the best way for a veteran to put the best foot forward when he walks in the door and has a qualification that's very different in the civilian world than what he did in the military? Well, that's a great question. You've obviously read, read my notes here because that's one of my favorite topics. So here's what we've learned again through, through looking at some data and talking to hundreds of employers and thousands of soldiers. Um, I tell employers, don't hire soldiers to be patriotic. Don't hire soldiers for apple pie and to do them a favor. And they're not going to, they're only gonna hire soldiers to improve their business, ultimately their bottom line. And I tell soldiers the same thing. They may get an interview to be polite or patriotic, but they're only gonna get hired if they can somehow improve the bottom line of the company. So what we found is that, um, and what we encourage is to hire soldiers uh, not on their skill set, but on their attributes. Okay, their skill set, like their MOS, uh, I can I can fix diesel uh, vehicles. I can I can uh, put together computers. I can uh, do some phlebotomy tasks and draw blood. Those are skills, but the attributes of team play and being on time and being healthy and being being uh, drug free and that sort of thing. That's what everybody's looking for. Uh, I've had countless employers tell me, I'll teach them what they need to know. I just need a dependable person who'll, who'll be all on board. And, and that's what we produce uh, as a side effect to our national freedoms. We produce about 100,000 veterans a year that go back to the civilian community with that, that attitude uh, that, that we really give back to our country. So I encourage employers not to limit their search for a particular MOS. Okay. You don't just need to hire 25 Charlies, that MOS. You need to hire smart, articulate, dedicated people who are ready to learn. And we've got a lot of those. Uh, and the same thing with the soldiers. You know what we found? Here's a question for you and your listeners. It's a test question. So if you were to rack and stack all the MOSs in the Army, and put the most likely to be unemployed MOS once they transition all the way down to the least likely to be unemployed MOS once they transition. Um, 
how would you, I'll put you on the spot, Sean, how would you answer? What kind of MOSs would be the most likely to be unemployed when they transition off of active duty? The fact that I'm asking this tells you it's a, it's a hard question. Uh, off the top of my head, I would think like a company sniper being, you know, like his skills may not, uh, may not transfer well into, you know, working at yeah. the, the local bakery. Um, sure. But if I went down to um, least likely to be unemployed, probably like, like Ryan, maybe a uh, Lotus, Lotus Mm -hmm. Is that how I see so? That? Yeah. So you've answered just like almost everybody answers, mm -hmm. which is incorrectly. I figured. In fact, what we found <laughs> that the—that's why it's a test question. Yeah. What we found is that the uh, the support military skills that have almost a one-to-one -one civilian counterpart are unemployed at a much higher rate than the infantryman or the cannoneer or the tanker. Hmm. Uh, so there may be a lot of reasons for that, but the point is employers don't hire for the skill set, hire for the attribute. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some skill sets, uh, skill sets, you know, the anesthesiologist I talked about, obviously, she's going to go and remain an anesthesiologist. Uh, a diesel mechanic in the motor pool or an 88 mic in the motor pool might not want to do that. And what we found is many of them said, you know, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. But uh, I think I want to do something else. Mm -hmm. Go early, go often, so you can figure out what that something else is and find those milestones to get from here to there. I think it's just because infantrymen are go-getters. <laughs> well, I don't necessarily disagree, uh, having some uh, experience in that background myself, but uh, it probably it warrants more than just our radical uh, knuckle-dragging uh, opinion perhaps <laughs> mr hurt I, I feel like we'd be doing our audience a disservice if we didn't at least mention that you are a sixth generation uh service member um that dates back i said to my wife when i read that i said oh my god that dates back what pre-civil war uh pre-revolution actually pre -revolution. from the from the french and indian war uh wow. to to the revolution and the civil war uh couple of world wars and uh, a couple of recent wars. So uh, I'm, I'm extremely uh, blessed to have a, a, a family with, uh, with patriotic roots. Uh, we are all extremely blessed to live in this country uh, where we can make choices and everybody can uh, exceed to whatever limit they're, they're capable of going. But yes, I'm very proud of that. And, uh, you know, it's a big part of who I am. I, yeah, I heard it. Uh, listened to an interview with you where you said, uh, growing up, the, it wasn't so much that service was was taught; it was ingrained. It was it was an, almost an expectation that that's what you did, right? Well, yeah. So, you know, nobody in my family um, ever mentioned military service. I mean, there, I didn't grow up listening to war stories. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, both my father and grandfather very quiet. Never never brought it up. But some kind of service to society to somehow uh, help your your neighbors is is the expectation uh, in, in our family. And I think to a great extent, maybe more extent than we than we admit, is really an expectation across our society. That's why one of the reasons we have a great country. And if people want to learn more about your particular service, you did uh, author a book, uh, Unconventional Warrior. I did. 
and, and I enjoyed doing that. I wrote that maybe six or eight years ago uh, for a couple of reasons. One, for my daughters so that they knew what their father did. Uh, and really, two, to kind of give my opinion on, on how we're doing, uh, how we were doing in this global unconventional war on terror. That was, as a Green Beret colonel, that was my specialty. Uh, to fight the enemy by, with, and through the indigenous population. Uh, so I've got some lessons learned and observations on how to do that. That was long before my experience in TAP, um, but uh, certainly some common lessons learned about uh, uh, about preparation and, multi and involvement across the uh, battlefield. Ryan, any, any further questions before we, we say goodbye to Mr. Hurd? No, I just wanted to say, you know, uh, thank you, Mr. Hurd, for for coming on the uh, the scuttlebutt, and uh, thank you for everything you do for our soldiers. And uh, I appreciate you uh, your service to our country, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to checking your book out. So thank you very much, Mr. Hurd. I appreciate it. Well, thank you all for what you do, and I'm happy to talk tap anytime, any place with anybody. Uh, appreciate getting the word out, and uh, I look forward to interacting with you again. If I can do anything, give me a call. Of course, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the Scuttlebutt. Uh, this uh, episode will be uh, out and available on Monday. Uh, so we'll let you, you and your folks know about, uh, about its release. Um, but uh, hope to see you again on another episode. It'd be great to collaborate again. I'll be here. Thank you. Okay, so uh, TAP seems like a really incredible program, Ryan. Uh, it realized that you guys at the Vet Center sort of handle transition in a different way. And you are personally looking at sort of a transition. Did you sort of follow Mr. Hurd's advice and start to really think about this early and what you want out of it and how you're going to do it? Yeah, so I uh, recently reached, you know, 20 years in service. And, and uh, as we mentioned in the talk with Mr. Hurd, right, so I'm, a, I'm in the reserves right now. So it's a little different, right? Most of my major needs are taken care of, right? I have a job, I have a house, I already have equity, and I'm, I'm already in the, the town I'm going to be living in, and I'm, I'm invested in the community. So uh, it, it is a little bit different, a little bit like less difficult. I think where it where it really gets weird is all the all the benefits and all of the um, all these things you don't think about as a soldier, right? The how many retirement points do I have, and what do I need, and when do I get my benefits, and how do I sign up for them? So being a you know being a, an employee of the VA, it makes it a little easier for me to understand most of that. But on the Army side, it's still it's very confusing and it's very you know, who do you go to and, and, and where do you get this information from? And, and is this person right? And I'm looking at this online program and this piece of paperwork is not reflective of what it should actually be saying, in my opinion, like, how do I get this fixed? Right. And, and they're like, well, you just go through your personnel office and you send an email to this, you know, email group that you don't hear back from for weeks at a time. And, and uh, yeah, so it, it can be um, very intimidating the army puts out some great products uh but at the same time like sometimes you don't even know where to go to look for that right so um my uh you know my boss came over and just hand he knew that i was interested in retiring and looking into it and he just handed me this big kind of handbook and it was like here's all the things you need to consider and look at when you're about to retire and it was very well put together and it was put together by by tap and you know, just going through it, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know about that. Oh, wow, I didn't know. About I mean, I was highlighting things left and right, like, oh, I, and then it gives you the, the resource to go look at it. So, yeah, it's it's been really interesting. Of course, I've had a few transitions in my in my career. So 
even though I've been in for 20 years and have no break in service, for some reason, Uncle Sam thinks I need to serve like another six months. So, <laughs> you know, they always get you. They get you somehow. <laughs> so that's where I'm at right now. You know, they're like, no, you have you have 19 and a half years of service. And I was like, mm, I don't know how that math works out, but yeah. Whatever. I mean, they're they're waiting for me. Basically, my retirement packet is is sitting with Human Resources Command, and they're just waiting for my twenty year letter, which is a which is you know the the thing that says you have been in service for twenty years and makes you eligible for a pension and all of that. Once the system hits that certain number of points and days in service, it'll spit that out. It'll go into my packet. It will be submitted, and then you know some undetermined time after that i will be retired <laughs> yeah, boy, oh boy. it's like it's like you, you called the girl for prom and you're like hey i left a message with your parents would yeah. love to know if you'd like to go with me <laughs> you yeah. sit by the phone and you wait yeah and you don't and i never really thought and they tell you and i thought this was a joke they tell you like oh well if you're going to be retiring you need to like start putting that stuff together like a year out and i was like oh you mean i was like oh, i already know all my benefits and whatever like no 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 i don't mean that like like the paperwork just the paperwork to retire you need to start like a year before you retire so yeah i'm like and and i guess it makes sense i mean that has to bounce around to so many different places and they need to go through it with a fine-tooth comb because they don't because once you're out there's no fixing anything you know, once you're once you're out, there's no going back and fixing any of that paperwork. Like it is what it is when you when you're done and you've signed it and you are out, they're not going to go back and change anything. It's basically impossible. So yeah, they have to make sure that it is all 100% correct. And uh, yeah, so it's so been that's a trip, man. That, that's something that I guess maybe when we first met, and I was just like wait, what's the difference between being a serviceman, being a national guardsman and, and being, a, you know, in the reserves, like, yeah. as I've come to understand it more, but this is something that I still was kind of confused on is that you, even though you left service and you're a civilian, you're still working for the army as a civilian, but, but you, and you can retire from the army. So there's like that breadth of your career is serviceman, national guard, reservist, all of it with the army. But at some point you transitioned to being a civilian working for the army but no well, well no so i'm a reservist so i'm a i'm still a, a serving reservist so okay you know i have a civilian job but i'm still like in the army reserves or in the army national guard and okay so you're still like you know my my dod uh, common access card you know just says army right it doesn't say army national guard army reserve it just says army so um there's a whole weird point system that works out and basically you have to reach a certain number of points in order to retire um, but the biggest difference between retiring off of active duty and retiring with a um, reserve pension is that when you retire off active duty with 20 years so let's say you're 38 um, you retire off of active duty after 20 years you get your pension immediately like you start getting 50 percent of your base pay immediately um, which is cool. Like, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, when you're a reservist in National Guard, uh, you get it at 60 years old. So for me, because I have a combination of both, there's this other calculation that has to go into effect where like, 
they take a year off of 60 for every year of active duty or whatever. So it's like, I don't remember exactly when I'll get it. They still haven't told me because we're still waiting for this whole calculation to come out, but you know, I'll get, I'll get it sometime in my fifties, right? I'll get, I'll get the pension, but that is if I make it that long without the stress making me keel over. <laughs> Hopefully we have you around for that long. Um, so as a final question, what are your, like we heard Mr. Hurd's advice for servicemen and women, whenever they're thinking about transition, what is what is your particular advice? Oh, I think his I think his advice was fantastic, and uh, his, uh, his this is obviously like his field of expertise. Um, I think if I could add on anything to it, it's it's networking. It's um it's getting involved. Like if you have a place where you know you're going to go, you need to like start investigating that place. You know, reaching out, or just say you you pick a city the day you retire and you move to Atlanta, right? Like get engaged. Uh, in the community and start meeting people in different circles. And it'll take some time if you if this isn't where you're from or whatever, but people hire who they know. And um, if you can get in front of some people and, and meet people, and if you're looking to work, working in a, in a certain industry, you know, start networking into those industries. So I think that that, that is, that is really important. And when you, you know, there's lots of veteran organizations all over the place, you meet those people, they know someone who knows someone who can, you know, who can talk to somebody about getting you a job or, you know, what neighborhood to live in or whatever. So I think networking is like, is super important. And because you go from the military where it's taking care of a lot of your needs in that way, and there's a structure and, and all of those things, and then you get into civilian life and it's not that same way. So I think that would, to add on to what Mr. Hurt said, I would say, I would say networking would probably be the one thing that, that uh, I would say would be very advantageous. All right, well, uh, to our audience, thank you for joining us for this program specifically focused on TAP and transitioning out of the, the service. Uh, if you liked what you saw, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know when we release new episodes every Monday. Uh, also, if you have any questions, uh, you can send them to me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, I'll be happy to send them on or field them if I can. Um, as a civilian, I probably can't, but hey, reach out. Uh, but thank you for joining us for this episode of The Scuttlebutt, and we'll see you uh, on a future episode. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. DND accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D. That's D&D Auto Salvage. Uh, thank you so much to DND. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, 
and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.